0: Listener supported, WNYC Studios. Check one, check two. Oh, wait, you're
1: listening.
0: Okay. All right. Okay. okay. All right. You're, you're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Lab. it. Radio from WNYC. C. C? Yep. <laughs> Hey, I'm Chad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krolwich. This is Radio Lab, The podcast. And um, here's what I want to do today. You know, we just did the hour-long uh, show about the Galapagos. Yeah. And in the middle of that show, we hit on this idea that there are so many of us on the planet now doing so many different things which affect the air and the water that the creatures on the planet um, can no longer really be uninfluenced by our presence. They can't be truly wild. And that made me wonder, well, if you want to give the other creatures on Earth a little more room to be wild and independent, then what do we have to give up? In fact, how much are we willing to give up to make that happen? Uh, whew. I
1: don't know. These are these are tough questions. Um, I mean, you know I'm not good at the answer part, right? I'm
0: just, uh, you read the so book. this is John
1: Mowallam. Uh, I'm John Mowallam. I wrote a book called Wild Ones,
0: and I'm a writer with the New York Times Magazine. And being a writer, he he told me a story. Now, this is a story which shed some light on this question, but I think you'd have to say it's a difficult light. Okay. So um, there was
1: a, a family of whooping cranes that had been part of this story, story revolves very, around
0: a project very,
2: to create a wild flock of whooping cranes one of the most spectacular birds in the world five foot tall is pitch white you know with black wingtips got a seven foot wingspan beautiful flyer this is joe duff i'm the uh, co-founder of operation migration the current ceo now we've done
0: a story on operation migration before in radio lab but here's the here's the gist at one point the whooping crane population in north america was down to like fifteen birds just one flock so joe and a bunch of other folks decided to to see if they could start a new flock of cranes so they raised some cranes in wisconsin and then they teach them a new migration route to florida by leading them there in an ultralight airplane yeah joe in addition to being founder and ceo is also the lead pilot
2: right how long have you been you've been doing this for a while right um i started flying with birds in 93 20 years. And the key to this whole project, Joe says, is... To eliminate all things human. These are wild creatures. You know, we do this whole thing in full costume so the birds don't hear voices, they don't, uh, they don't see buildings or any other human paraphernalia in, or- in order to maintain their wildness. Joe even wears an all-white, crane-like costume when he's up there in the ultralight,
0: leading the birds down to Florida. And when they get to Florida... The cranes are supposed to, you know, they're brought to this um,
1: Chazahowitzka National Wildlife Refuge. It's a coastal wetland. It's all uh, salt marsh. In the Tampa area.
2: And the birds are put into, uh, it's called a release, Pet. It has a 12 foot high fences protected by electric wire but the whole complex is not top netted and so um, after a while the birds realize they can fly out Then they go seek
0: out their own territories. It's
2: called a gentle release into the wild. Or the not so wild.
0: And here's where the problem starts It's the winter of 2007 and we've got a, a particular bunch of cranes this family they were called the first family because they
1: were the first um, cranes in the population to have a have a chick that they led south The first
2: wild hatch migratory whooping crane in the. US since the last nest was reported in
1: 1878 and these cranes had wound up in um, in this little subdivision a uh,
2: wetland complex that was surrounded by houses
1: It was perfect crane habitat it was it was basically a marsh. Just so happened that it was in this this woman's backyard, and so the, the the birds, which had been the product of this you know very intensive effort and tons of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars an hour, um, to be wild whooping cranes, were now just in her backyard. And there was there was free food there. She had all these bird feeders, this whole array of different
2: bird feeders up around her yard. And that's not good sign. Why is
0: this a problem?
2: Well, the problem is we're worried that the birds are going to become acclimated to people. To be really safe, Joe says, these birds should be afraid of people. Six of them have been shot. You know, by vandals. Six birds have been shot. Six whooping cranes have been shot in this project by vandals. Yeah. So what do you do? We asked the people to stop um, feeding them. Do you have like a a reverse phone directory, or you have a? a, Well, we track the birds. They're all tracked. And so they knew exactly where they
0: where they were, and they were able to figure out that the cranes were in the backyard of someone named Ms. Gibbs.
1: Clarice. Clarice. Yes. Clarice Gibbs. And, uh, you know, they knocked on on our door and and explained, you know, the whole ins and outs of the project. And would you please take your bird feeders down? And uh, she she said no.
0: No? Yeah. Why would you say no? Well, John talked to the people who went to see her, and
1: you know, they didn't say crazy, but you got the sense that there was this, you know, crazy old bird lady who lived in this house who'd, who would not take her feeders down. They told John that she—they she, thought hot she hot was hot acting hot kind hot of erratic, and uh, hot and that uh, things hot just, hot just hot kept getting worse and worse. And they had actually gone and, and put a plastic fence around one of her feeders at one point. It was she? They had thought she had given permission, but she had no memory of that. So it
0: it got it got bitter pretty fast. And so John decided, I'm going to go talk to this woman.
1: Yeah. So I I was sort of girding myself for a you know crazy old bird lady who lived in this house, but I but I went to go see her, and uh, you know it was it was a how do I even talk about it? I mean, it was a really emotional day for me. Um, we sat at her at her dining room table, and she was having a lot of trouble remembering the exact chronology of what had happened when. Um she, uh, you know, she said, excuse me, I, I'm just, it's hard for me to kind of piece things together around that, around that time. And, uh, and basically the story emerged.
3: At that time, uh, oh gosh, if I could... When
0: we heard that story, we decided we needed to talk to Clarice ourselves. So we called her up out of kind of the blue and asked her if we could record the conversation. We record, we would love to do it.
3: Well, you no, know, it wouldn't bother me at all. I wouldn't mind. Okay. Clarice
0: will tell us her, i got—I got to say, it's a sort of surprising version of this tale in just a second.
1: My name is Zachary Esimo from Sarasota, Florida. Radiolab is supported in part by the National Science Foundation and by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at
0: www.sloan.org. We're back, and we, we've we just called up Clarice Gibbs.
3: No, it wouldn't bother me at all. I wouldn't mind.
0: Okay. So you were about to say that you're, you first of all, the description, you, how many bird feeders did you have in the backyard, would you say, roughly?
3: Um, at that time, uh, I think I had two or three in um, an oak tree that's here in our backyard, and where we live is, um, it's just, you know, it's a peaceful area, and birds like things like that. They don't like to be around, around a lot of Congestion and stuff and uh we enjoy them. Well, I say we, um when my husband was alive, we you know, we both enjoyed the birds and feed everything. This
0: day. is where the story flipped for me because when those conservationists were knocking at Clarice's door, her husband of more than fifty years. He,
1: he had Alzheimer's. Um and they were sort of hunkered down at their house waiting for his for his life to end.
3: Yeah, this was this was before uh you know, the Alzheimer's took him really bad.
1: And what they were doing was spending a lot of time on their back porch looking at the birds. And
3: we would come out here and sit with our tea or lemonade. Um, he, would, uh, he would just kind of watch. Our back porch, of course, faces the lake. We have a beautiful yard. We have oak trees. And as I'm sitting here talking to you, there's all kinds of birds around right now feeding. Um, We even have sandhill cranes that have two babies with them. So Um, Clarice
0: and her husband would be there on the porch. And and if, if you've had this disease in your family, you know how painful it is because here's her husband. And he is just disappearing a little bit and a little bit more. And then he's mostly not there. But when a bird or a bunch of birds come by the bird feeders, from wherever he was,
3: he's back. As soon as he would spot something, he'd say, Babe, there there's, there, it is. There's the hummingbird.
0: And when the whooping crane showed up, big and white and wild...
3: That would really get his attention because they are such big, beautiful birds. You know, I could see the, oh gosh, like a happiness in his eyes and... He would smile. Oh, to me it was like you know he he came back to me for a little bit when when he would see things like this it would just it would make him so happy and it would make me happy too to see how it affected him. I'm sorry. I just I I mm. I, I get a kind of choked up when I talk about him. We were married for 56 years when. That disease took him, and it was hard hard
1: from her point of view, it was like a miracle to see a bird like that and and the way that her husband responded to them, and just you know the way they, that they took his breath away um when really you know he wasn't responding to a to a lot else in the world
3: it's a blessing you know when when they seem to recognize things and and then you lose them again, you know yeah.
0: So that's why when the crane people showed up at her door and said, please take the bird feeder down, she said, no.
1: You know, I left that house uh, just, you know, I just couldn't figure out um, how to make sense of it all once once I'd left.
0: Have the people who visited her, having read your account, have they changed their minds at all about her or what they do? Because... It's a toughie, this, this this situation. Yeah,
1: I'm sure they would still believe that the birds shouldn't have been fed, but I don't
0: know if they would be any more sympathetic to her now. Desire to see her husband, and these birds, oddly enough, are the trigger. Mm-hmm. So I told Joe Clarice's story. So now what do you say?
2: Well, you know, my father died of Alzheimer's, so I can respect exactly what she's going through and how difficult it is. However, the cost of that is the demise of a bird that that other people have spent a huge amount of time in you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for that entire bird's life until it was a year old putting in the wild to help save a species. But it, but if you put yourself in her shoes, she says, she, by
0: the way, and, uh, was very careful.
3: I, I was very, very emphatic that, that we didn't mess with the birds because I knew they didn't want them being confronted with with people. You know, they... Because they are a wild thing, and, and uh, it's, it's, it, it, to me, it, 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 I don't know. I, we've always loved nature. We've just always loved nature and, and the wildlife.
0: So she stayed where, where she felt you'd want her to stay, but it's a hard one to ask that she give up a glimpse at her husband for the sake of the birds,
2: I suppose. I'm a little more pragmatic than that, unfortunately. Hmm. You would want you would have him make an exception for her. Well, at the very least, I would have
0: him I understand think... that she's in a unique place. That he's no, I don't he's... think it's unique. Well, I, maybe she is in her particulars, but that is precisely the problem he has to deal with. It are people like her? She means well. We all mean well. It's not a case of like. People with guns shooting these birds, I mean, that does happen, but I don't think that's the big problem. No, these are two people who both love the bird but can't agree on something about right. it. Right, and he's saying in order to love the bird, you have to negate...
2: You have to, just, you have to disappear. And we can't, as human beings, we don't seem to be able to do that. We all have our own personal requirements, and we put those over and above anything else, including wildlife, and that's why wildlife is, is in such peril. He's
0: asking her to say goodbye to her husband for the sake of a bird species. I know, it's, I just worry that if everybody in the world is like her, then those birds don't have a chance.
2: I would love it if these birds could just exist on their own somewhere in, 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 in deep water marshes where they don't ever encounter people. But that's never going to happen. It's just not going to happen. And that's
1: the struggle. It's never going to go away, you know, no matter what, no matter what happens with any of these species conservation projects, we're not going to strike some balance where we never have to think about the power that we're exerting in the world. This give and take, that's, that's what it is. That's the end game. It's, it's that forever.
0: Special thanks to Simon Adler, who, uh, who f- whom ferried us through this whole project, and also to John Moalem whose book, The Wild Ones, is uh, the source of the story. I am Robert Krulwich. of Umran. We'll be back
3: next time.